Uh, Martin Luther King once said, nothing worthwhile is gained without sacrifice. Can I suggest the Australian version is not as fancy, but it's shorter. No pain, no gain. In other words, good, beneficial things only come as a result of struggle and difficulty. Now that's a principle that has all sorts of applications in life. Removing splinters. I remember when I was a kid, I used to hate splinters getting out, but my father would say, it's gonna hurt for a little bit, but it will be better. <laughs> Training for a sports event, getting fit, studying for an exam, establishing a successful business, learning to skateboard, physiotherapy after an operation. Each of these things has pain or struggle or difficulty that you have to bear before you can enjoy the pleasure or the achievement. In fact, the pain is necessary to achieve the gain. Or here's one that we find in today's passage from Micah. I wonder if you noticed it. A woman suffering the pains of labour and childbirth before the birth of a new baby. There's no way around it. The joy of a new baby comes because of the pain of labour. The pain has a purpose. As more than one midwife said to Karen over the course of four deliveries, yes, it hurts, but it's positive pain. You get a baby at the end. <laughs> Focus on that. I'm not sure how helpful the comment was for Karen at the time, but they all said it. It's positive pain. And Micah uses this same picture of labour pains to illustrate what Jerusalem will go through with the pain of her invasion and destruction and exile. Did you notice? Have a look there in chapter 4, verse 9. Micah says, Why do you now cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counsellor perished? that pain seizes you like that of a woman in labour? Writhe in agony, O daughter of Jerusalem, like a woman in labour, for now you must leave the city to camp in the open field. You will go to Babylon. Now, do you remember the situation Mike is in? God's patience has finally run out at the sin of his people. Uh, firstly, the kingdom of Israel in the north, Assyria, their capital, uh, will be captured by, uh, sorry, uh, Samaria, their capital, will be captured by Assyria and uh, will be made a pile of rubble. But also, uh, Judah, the, the southern kingdom, its capital, Jerusalem, it's facing the same fate. Uh, we saw in chapter 2 how God hated the greed and the injustice, the, the rich abusing the poor. There's more of those same condemnations in chapter 3 that we jumped over this morning. Uh, once again, Micah zooms in on the haves, the rich, the privileged. Uh, he says in chapter 3, verse 9, Hear this, you leaders of the house of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel, who despise justice, distort all that's right, who build Zion with bloodshed, Jerusalem with wickedness, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price. Her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come among, uh, upon us. And so Micah ends chapter 3 with this warning. Therefore, because of you, you leaders, 
Zion will be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. So that's the context uh, for chapter 4 verse 9 where Micah describes Jerusalem's destruction like the pain of a woman in labour. So how can the destruction of this city be like labour pains? Where's the gain? Where's the birth at the end of the pain? Well, look again at what Micah says, firstly in verse 9. Why do you cry aloud? Have you no king? Has your counsellor perished? That pain seizes you. Micah's reminding them that their painful situation, it's not hopeless. God is their king. They think they have no one, but God is their counsellor and guide. He has a plan. And the plan is there will be gain at the end of the pain. Have a look there in verse 10. There'll be the pain of exile, but look at how the verse finishes. You will go to Babylon. There you will be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you out of the hand of your enemies. So that's the gain at the end of the pain. Just a couple of interesting things to note there with that prophecy. Did you notice who the enemy is? It's Babylon. Now, that would have been strange in the in the ears of those first hearers because they'd say, who's Babylon? You see, Babylon was some insignificant minor kingdom a long way away. It was Assyria who were the nation storming their borders. Israel's capital, Samaria, it hadn't been defeated yet. That, that happened in 722 BC. No one will hear of Babylon for another 100 years. But here's Micah prophesying that they'll end up being exiled in Babylon. So secondly, what that means is that Micah's warning to Judah actually worked. It it proved effective. Micah warned them that judgment was imminent, but yet it didn't happen for over 100 years. In fact, Jeremiah 26.18 tells us that the king of Judah, King Hezekiah, he actually he listened to Micah's warning. He, he took it to heart and he sought God. And we're told that God relented. God didn't bring the evil that he'd warned them about. So that's in 730 BC. But even though God was slow to anger, he, he, Micah's prophesying that eventually his patience will run out and it lasts through the Assyrian Empire It lasts while Babylon rises to power. But then in 576 BC, 140 years later, uh, Babylon crushes Jerusalem. The Jews are exiled to Babylon, just as Micah's predicted. So that's the bad news. That's the pain of judgment, exile and defeat. But what's the good news? What's the gain? Uh, Well, we're told that they will return from exile... But there's also more good news that's sprinkled through chapters 4 and 5. We're going to go straight away to verse 11 of chapter 4. God's promise that he'll rescue them from Babylon. That's verse 10. But verse 11 actually jumps back to Micah and the present situation. So 730 BC. And he says in verse 11, But now, not off then, but now... Many nations are gathered around you, they're gathered against you. There's Assyria, got their eyes on Judah. 
But verse 12, they don't know what God has planned. God will judge those nations as well in the present. And somehow, verse 13, Israel will be God's instrument to bring about justice against the nations as well. If we move into chapter 5, we jump once again from Micah's present off into the future. Uh, And in verse 1 we're told that armies would lay siege to Jerusalem and even strike Israel's king. Uh, Possibly that's Babylon who took out the eyes of King Zedekiah before he was led off into exile. Uh, There's more pain. But but in verse 2, notice the game. This is some promise for the future. God will raise up a ruler to replace this king, a ruler from Bethlehem, King David's town. He'll be in King David's line, a descendant who God will place on the throne. What will his reign be like? Well, verse 4, he'll shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. They'll dwell securely, they'll live in peace, gain after the pain. But before that, there'll be pain, verse 3, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who's in labour gives birth. Different people wonder what that might mean, but I think that's referring back to the pain of the exile, until the exile's over. That's when the gain will come. Now, Micah, the people who were hearing his prophecy, I think they would naturally hear that prophecy and think, great, pretty soon we're going to get a king and everything's going to be all right again. But there was nobody in history like that. So, so what's, the, what's the prophecy? Who's the prophecy talking about? Well, as Stu mentioned in his kids' talk, the, the best match, of course, is Jesus. 700 years into the future from when Micah spoke these words. When the wise men turn up at Jerusalem to look for the new king, they report to Herod. Herod asks the experts, and the experts quote this verse to him. Uh, Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and they say, the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Uh, And as we look at the other characteristics of this prophecy, uh, we see that he really is a king whose origins are from of old. Jesus has always existed. He really does shepherd his flock in God's strength, verse 4. And his flock really do dwell secure. And his reputation really has reached the ends of the earth. Here is the ultimate good that God works through the pain of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. What I want to do though, uh, rather than continue on in chapter 5, is is jump back to the start of chapter 4 and and look again at, at some of these good things, these great things that come after the pain of exile. Now, we've done a little bit of hopping through time. We've gone Micah's time, we've gone far forward. Uh, But the start of chapter 4 goes even further forward in time. Uh, Notice how chapter 4 begins. In the last days, what's being described is going to be the final reality. It's going to be God's last word. Uh, This reality, nothing comes after it. Uh, Chapter 3 has finished with the image of Zion ploughed like a field. 
verse 12, with Jerusalem a heap of rubble, the temple hill a, a heap of dirt overgrown with weeds. There's the pain of defeat. But straight away we jump into chapter 4, verse 1. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be re-established as chief among the mountains. It'll be raised above the hills and peoples will, peoples will stream to it. Sometime in the future, God is going to restore the temple mountain. He'll raise it, he'll elevate it, not, not physically, but he'll raise it in terms of significance. It'll be the most important place, the most important temple anywhere. Why? Because it's going to attract the nations to it. And when the nations gather around this temple and this mountain, they'll come to find out about the one true God. Uh, Look at verse 2 of chapter 4. Many nations will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The Lord will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The people are coming not just to learn about God's ways, they actually want to obey him, they want to walk in his paths. And in verse 3, this, this kingdom is going to be a place of justice and peace because God will be the king and the ruler and the leader and the judge. There'll be justice in the courts. It's a big improvement on Judah's leaders before the exile. Look at verse 3. He will judge between many peoples, settle dis- disputes for strong nations far and wide. They'll beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Every man will sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. It'll be a time of unity, but not uniformity. National distinctives will remain, but there'll be a worldwide peace between nations. You won't need a sword, a spear... All the weapons will be rendered useless. They'll be turned into farming equipment. And how's this for a picture of rest and contentment? Verse 4, every man sits under his own vine and fig tree. How's the serenity? And just in case you think this amazing picture is uncertain or unrealistic, do you notice the last line of verse 4? For the Lord Almighty has spoken. The God of hosts has given his word. You can trust this picture, this promise. Jump over verse 5 for a minute. We'll come back to it. We're going to zoom in on it. But verses 6 to 8 give us a few more details about what this future reality is going to be like. God's going to gather the nations, but not just the nations. He's going to gather the lame and the exiles a remnant, a faithful portion, those he's protected, and God will rule over them in Mount Zion forever. It's a wonderful picture, but if you're anything like me, you've got questions. When will this be? Is it for some time in history or is it outside of history? 
Is it literal or is it symbolic? In what sense does Jesus fulfil this picture? Does he replace the physical temple as the focus for people to gather around? Or should we look to the re-establishment of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem? That's certainly the way many Christians interpret it, especially in America. It's shaped American foreign policy about Israel. And what's the purpose of this promise from God through Micah? Why does he announce it if it's off into the future? What difference does it make for Micah's hearers? What difference does it make for us today? And if that's the certain glorious future, why do we have to go through all the pain now? Why doesn't God just jump straight to there, just hit fast forward? Why do we have to live with all of this labour pain that we go through? Why not just jump straight to glory? Now, they're my questions. You might have more questions about these verses. Uh, For what it's worth, here's my answers to some of this stuff. It's describing eternity. Uh, In the last days, when God brings this world to an end, when he brings his new heaven and new earth into existence. The New Testament gives us more details about what it'll be like. Uh, Not just a new heaven and a new earth, but we will receive eternal, glorious resurrection bodies where sin will be defeated and there'll be no more suffering, there'll be no more pain, there'll only be gain. Is it literal or symbolic? Well, I think the simple answer is yes, it's probably a bit of both. Eternity will be like this. It'll be earthly. It'll be paradise. It'll be united and peaceful, but I think there'll still be differences between people. But it'll also be different because since, Jesus, uh, since Micah prophesied these words, Jesus has come and fulfilled them. He is now the temple. He replaces the temple. He is the one that the nations stream to. In him, God's uh, justice has been satisfied as a sacrifice for sin. He is the priest. He is the king. He is the teacher who is the word of God, who guides and teaches the nations. He is the one God has appointed to be the judge of all by raising him from the dead. He is the descendant of King David, the shepherd who gathers his sheep, not just from the the sheep pen of Israel, but from other sheep pens as well. He's the one every knee will bow before and the one every tongue in every language will confess as Lord. So in some ways, this prophecy is not literal. There there are whole bits of it that are fulfilled in Jesus. What's the point of it? What practical difference should it make for how we live today? Well, here's where I want to go back to verse 5 of chapter 4. We jumped over it before. And the way I think it's best to understand it is that it's a response from the people as they hear about God's prophecy. So verse 4 finishes with, uh, finishes the prophecy with, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. And then the people respond. All the nations may walk in the names of their gods. We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In other words, 
From this point, as we hear God's promise about a future kingdom, until the, until the day God actually brings it to pass, we will walk in the name of the Lord. We will show that we trust God's promises for that future, even in the midst of the pain we are labouring under now, by living God's way. We'll walk in his name. We'll obey him even when it seems like foolishness. We will hope expectantly that the gain will come after the pain. As for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God. So in that sense, that picture of eternity Micah gives us, it works like the midwife who encourages the mother going through the labour pains. Focus on the goal. Forget the pain. There's gain at the end. There's going to be a beautiful baby. But it also does something else. It doesn't just give us hope for a different life. It actually shapes the life we now live. It shapes the life we now live. It guides and fuels and inspires us to make that the characteristics of that future kingdom a present reality. Justice and compassion and mercy and peace and unity and a focus on God. That's the future, but it's also our agenda for the present, to be working to make that real. So in that sense, the vision is anticipatory. It's aspirational. It's visionary. It's a target to aim for. You see, as the church does that, as we seek to make that future picture a reality today, the world begins to catch a glimpse of God and his kingdom. They begin to develop a hunger for it, to long for it, to recognise how far it is from the reality that we presently experience. But here's one final question for us to think about. If that future is so good, why doesn't God just jump straight to it? Why not just hit fast forward? Why, do we, why not avoid the labour and go straight to the delivery? Where's the spiritual caesarean section? Why not get straight to the game? Well, for Israel, Micah has taught us that exile was necessary to, to refine, to purify, to shape his people, to gather a faithful remnant who would in humility follow him. That was the gain at the end of the pain. And that's the same thing that's happening in our world today. It's the same thing that's in your life and my life. The difficulties, the injustices, the suffering, God's loving hand of discipline on us, it humbles us. It makes us groan and long for eternity. It makes us depend on God. It grows us like Jesus. It teaches us patience. No pain, no gain. It's a general principle in life, but it's a spiritual one as well. 
It's one that God is using to prepare you for that glorious eternity. Listen to these wonderful promises. Romans chapter 5 verse 3. We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character and character hope. Romans, no pain, no gain. Romans 8 verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. No pain, no gain. Romans 8.28 We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. No pain, no gain. Well, here's one more. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. God disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Say it with me. No pain, no gain. (laughs) How do we respond to the labour pains of God's discipline in our life? In humility and trust and hope. We seek to work out justice and mercy and godliness and unity and peace inspired by that vision of God's future glorious kingdom. And as Micah 4 verse 5 would encourage us, all the nations may walk in the names of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, uh, what a glorious future picture. Uh, Help us not just to dismiss that as something irrelevant that's off there. Help us to digest it, uh, to long for it, to resemble it, to work for it. Lord, we pray as you are at work in our situations and in our lives, disciplining us, teaching us, growing us like Jesus. Help us to accept your hand of discipline humbly, not enjoying the pain and discipline, but recognising your loving good purposes. Uh, Lord, there's those of us today who are particularly under a heavy hand of your discipline, and so we uh, we pray that Uh, you would be especially with them, comforting, guiding, strengthening. Uh, Use us to do that as well, Lord. Help us to be aware of those around us. Help us to know, to ask, to pray, to help. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.